Welcome to Healthcare IT Today. I'm John Lynn, together with my colleague and friend, Colin Hung. The world of technology and healthcare are ever-changing in new and novel ways, and that's why we love this stuff. So join us as we discuss the latest healthcare and health IT news, mesh together in new ways which help generate ideas and new perspectives. Plus, we'll have a little fun along the way. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about interesting stats and findings that have crossed our desks recently. And be sure to follow the show on Twitter at the hashtag HITSM and our personal accounts at TechGuy and at Colin underscore Hung. Plus, check out our 16 years of health IT blog content at healthcareittoday.com. You're a stats nerd, right, Colin? I love stats, even though it was one of my worst courses in university. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but that's the one thing I love getting in my inbox is like, hey, someone got a new study. Here's some new results. I love those things. It's funny you say that because when I was a freshman, I did terrible. And then after I went on a mission for two years for my church, came back. And one of the first classes I took was a stats class and then also an accounting class, ironically. And I did amazingly well. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm not stupid. So it's like fascinating. (laughs) You're like, so I was like, oh, okay. It was just the wrong classes I was taking was the problem. (laughs) I needed to find my passion. And I, I, so stats, you know, it was easy for me. It made sense. (laughs) I just could never get my head wrapped around standard deviations and things like that. So uh, heavy duty stats, real stats, but these numbers and findings and survey results, I love these things. And uh, they're they're always fun to read. I've always said that if you're going to be a, you know, a social media person, a blogger, you have to be addicted to stats because you need to know how things are going. It's a way to, you know, you know, since you don't know who actually listens or who reads or who follows you, you don't really know. And so you need the stats to give you some validation. Anyways, but uh, yeah, so we found some really interesting stats. The one I want to bring up is is one that actually came from an interview I did at, at the HIMSS conference, and uh, it was with a guy named Mike Noche. He's founder and chief strategy and marketing, marketing officer at Veranovum, which, you know, Veranovum is focused on health data quality. And so we're having this discussion about quality. And I've asked hundreds of people like, oh, how good is the data? Can it be used? And Mike was the first one to like quantify how dirty is the data. And he shared this. He said, 40% is relatively good data. And then he said, 40%, another 40%, the algorithms can lift the quality of the data. So they know enough about it. It's good enough that with the right algorithms and the right you know, machine learning, you can make use of that data. And I thought it was just so fascinating to see him actually put a number to quantify it. Although it is sad to think that 20% of it still (laughs) needs a lot of work, right? And you have to go back to the source to improve it. But anyway, I was just fascinated by the stat that 40% was really good and another 40% was was good enough that AI could make up for it. No, but it does does speak to why... I think in the beginning, John, we were, you and I were kind of a little skeptical on how good AI could be when we know how difficult it is to even A, consolidate the data in a healthcare organization and B, even once you have it in a data lake or in some sort of standard format, then actually making it useful, right? And how clean is that data? So it's very interesting to find out that uh, I look at it as we're only 40%. We still have 60% more cleaning to do. Um, yeah, although I would have thought it would be much worse. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's true. Actually. I thought the it's numbers true. would be much worse, and that you know, you know, 
uh, you know, the data would be harder and, uh, you know, and it is interesting though, that the technology can lift the data. I think, you know, the fact that 40% can be improved, that, that seemed like a, a, an amazing number to me as well. And cause I think we, you know, if you've ever implemented an EMR, you've ever seen the data come out of it. There's only one piece of data that's even close to fully accurate. And you know what data that is? Billing data. Because it turns out you want to get paid. And every biller that's listening to this is saying, let me tell you some stories. But let's be honest, it's because of those billers that we know the billing data is is pretty solid, right? Uh, Whereas with many of the other things, there's not the external validation that billing requires because I'm not going to pay you unless it's accurate. So, you know, I would have thought it would be much worse. It actually gives me a lot of hope that we can derive a lot of value out of this amount of data that's either clean or could be clean enough to use. Yeah, no, and that you're right. I mean, it it does give me hope that we're on the right track because we have heard for years how hard it is and how messy a lot of the data is. It'd be interesting if someone could quantify how much of it is not accessible, like how much data, you know, is still out there that has to be consolidated. I wonder what that one is like. I mean, obviously I, I think it's declining, but I wonder, are there sort of these far-flung isolated systems still that are hanging out there that we can't get access to? What percentage that is of yeah. the overall amount of data? But it's good to know that the data that we are able to collect, um, you know, it, we're, we're sitting at that sort of either 40 or 80%, depending on how, you're, uh, how you look at it. Yeah, well, it also illustrates you, you, need, you need the right uh, cleaning staff, if you know what I mean, because <laughs> so you probably don't want to do your algorithms on just 40% good health data. But if you get the right you know, cleaning staff to clean up the other 40%, then that's a much better prospect. If you, if you feel confident and you have trust in 80%, that's pretty good uh, you know, as far as it's concerned. But you bring up a great point. Okay, that's 80% of the data we have available. How much data do we not have available yet? I think right. that's changing though. I think, I don't know. Is there a lot of data in silos that is not accessible? I think there's some uh, bureaucratic reasons it's not accessible, but I don't know if there's many data silos that couldn't be accessed if the will was there. Well, I, th- I think this gets into a more existential discussion. Like I look at it and go, I think from the clinical side, you're right. There's probably very few systems that remain so isolated that you can't access. But now as we get into more and more um, pattern recognition type stuff, you know, I've heard about people wanting to integrate weather data into predictive models, right? For their EDs and ERs. And how accessible is weather data? I mean, actually, that's probably pretty good. I was going to say, that's actually a bad example. But that's a bad ones. example. But, <laughs> but like, you know, what about HR data? And what about data that's not clinical in nature? I wonder how much of that data is, is, is accessible. And that's traditionally not in any fire or any, any sort of standard healthcare format. Yet it's something you probably want to, to integrate, like skill level of the staff that we're on, uh, that we're on at a particular time or they're in, that's not usually held in a clinical EHR. So it, it, that's why I say it could be interesting to see, you know, as we continue to grow, what percentage of that data actually is accessible. Yeah. And we've seen that. I, I saw an interesting company that was trying to do drug diversion. So basically people stealing the drugs from, from the hospital that they worked at or things like that. And in order to really solve that problem, they needed stuff like timesheet data. Right. You know, luckily Kronos owns a lot of that data and you can go and get it. Right. So, but they needed to know who was on the shift 
and how did the inventories levels change? And then they use the machine learning to look at that and say, oh, whenever Colin's on the shift, not, not that that would ever happen. Whenever Colin's on the shift, you know, the, the drug levels change. And uh, so then they were able to identify this drug diversion and be able to, you know, essentially fire the person and hold them accountable. So yeah, it is a good point. There's a lot of data. And, and you know, anytime we talk social determinants of health, there's all of that data that is challenging to access. Well, one of the stats, John, that uh, I came across my desk that I was interested in, it's a bit of a sad one, but um, but I think very eye-opening as well. So Get Well Network, which uh, is the digital patient experience solution uh, provider, they announced their expanded partnership with uh, the VA of Sierra Pacific Network. And uh, in that announcement, they shared a statistic that said 30% of active and reserve military workers deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq suffer from mental health conditions. And yet less than 50% of those people returning uh, will receive the treatment they need. Now, of course, we, we've heard about this for a while in terms of, you know, there isn't a lot of support for the mental health of veterans and that they're not, that there's not a lot of programs available to them or that they don't avail themselves of the programs that are available. Yeah. But what I found interesting was the stat specifically talking about people who were deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq. Because the stats I've seen before was sort of a conglomerate of all veterans, right? Like even going back as far as the Gulf Wars. Um, so this one, by singling out Afghanistan and Iraq, I thought was very interesting. Obviously, very timely, given what's going on uh, in the news as well. So, um, Yeah, and I think it's an interesting challenge because, I, you know, you said that, that, you know, they aren't getting the care that they need. And yet I think that the military probably receives the best mental health of anyone in the U.S. because we've seen so much. I mean, I think Vietnam should have taught us and has taught us in some ways, you know, that this is a problem that we need to address. And I think they've, you know, invested quite a bit of money into it. But the fact that it's still such a problem after investing more money and effort and you know options into it that that's kind of a sad thing because i think we have invested more in mental health for uh you know veterans than we have any other piece of society so that, that's the scary part for me you know i i worry about a lot of it is the you know the, the real overarching issue with mental health and and people not being comfortable going and getting it not you know I know how it is in the military, you know, you have to be tough, you have to suck it up and, you know, like changing that mindset to say, yeah, you can be tough and you can suck it up and you can still get help. Right. I mean, that's hard. That's, that's a hard thing to overcome. I do like what telehealth's doing. Uh, you know, then you don't have to walk into the counseling office and see your buddies and, you know, kind of, you know, be visually seen that you're going for mental health, uh, you know, that you can hop on telehealth and that's a more comfortable private way to do it. So I'm hopeful that will help, but it's, it's a challenge. Yeah. And you're right. I, I think a lot of the innovations that we are seeing in mental health uh, um, have their origins or their base in the military. Right. Like I've heard about, I think they were one of the first to pioneer group um, uh, mm -hmm. therapy sessions. And then um, with telehealth, as you've just mentioned, you can be anonymous. You can don't have to have the camera on. Right. Like um, so once you've been verified and validated, you can join these groups and then you don't have to show yourself on camera if you don't want to. And, you know, that's a new element. Whereas like you said before, you know, if you weren't comfortable showing your face, you probably wouldn't go to the session. You wouldn't go to the building. But now through telehealth, you have some more options available. And hopefully people are making use of that. Plus, there's a lot of those peer support 
ones, right? Where you, you know, we hear about the ones where, you know, a group will get together and, you know, they, they create a machine shop together, right? And they open us and, yeah. and then it's, it's not only mental health, but it's also getting them back into, into productive uh, society and things like that. So they pioneered a lot of these programs, which I think the other parts of the of behavioral uh, health industry is now u- utilizing. So it, it is just sad though, to your point that, you know, despite all the investments, we're still sitting at such a low percentage, uh, which means, you know, we just need to continue to keep plugging away at this. Uh, and I, and I, when I say plugging away, I mean both the programs, but also encouraging people to sign up for them, right? So I also look at the sort of innovation around signups and, and, yeah. and making people aware of these programs. That's also a part of the challenge. And I think related to that, it, it's the fundamental problem we talk about in healthcare all the time. And that is, how do you take care of a patient's wellness, whether it's a veteran or not? You know, and we talk a lot about these proactive communication solutions that, you know, whether it's a chat bot or whatever it might be that, that reaches out to the patient, because the reality is we can't scale the humans to the problem. The problem of customized care that happens for every patient across every situation, you know, humans can't scale to that problem. We have to use technology to scale to that problem. And to me, that feels very similar with the veterans. It's not that the VA and the other organizations, the DOD, don't care about the mental health problem. It's that the problem is so large that you can't scale humans to solve the problem of mental health with soldiers. We're gonna have to use some mix of technology that I like to describe it as technology that shows you that I care about you outside of your counseling visit. I care about you outside of your six month checkup, you know, you know, wellness check, et cetera. So I think that's where, you know, I think we need to think about this and where it's really one of those healthcare solutions that is kind of starting to come to age, which is how do I show that veteran or that patient that I care about them outside of the office and how can a bot or some sort of technology show that they care and kind of triage and evaluate that person and escalate them to the right care that they need. And, and, and to your point, influence them and <laughs> so that they sign up for programs that they might be afraid of or that they might not know about or whatever it might be. Uh, I think those technologies show a lot of hope, but they're still pretty immature as far as reaching out to them outside of the office visit. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Healthcare IT Today with John Lin and Colin Hung. Today, we're talking about recent statistics and study findings that we have found interesting. Today's episode is brought to you by Halo Health. The Halo Clinical Collaboration Platform was one of the first cloud-based HIPAA-compliant text messaging applications in healthcare. And today, the Halo platform is a unified communications and on-call scheduling platform for acute, ambulatory, and long-term care providers. To find out more, visit them at halohealth.com. Well, speaking of Halo Health, (laughs) John, you and I were recently involved in a uh, survey that they conducted. And as part of that survey, it identified some of the top health IT priorities uh, out there in the marketplace. And uh, just to list them very quickly, the top five were starting at number one, data security, number two, interop, interoperability, Number three, clinical communications, EHR optimization, and finally, number five, telehealth. Yeah, it's interesting. 
no AI. I didn't, AI didn't quite crack the top five. You know, I, I think that the message for me in this is that uh, sometimes the sexy isn't the practical. <laughs> and so <laughs> when you look at this, you're like, yeah, data security is a practical problem that obviously has grown with ransomware, with the attacks, the phishing attacks, et cetera. And so that's the problem people want to solve, right? Interoperability, I think that they are tired of hearing from clinicians who say, why can't I have this data? And then clinical communications, I find really fascinating was in the top three because we, every healthcare organization has multiple communication systems. So I actually read into this to say the reason clinical communications is a priority is that they have all these legacy systems and they need to consolidate, they need to upgrade, they need to improve those systems because many of the systems are either outdated and need to be replaced or there's a new methodology. I mean, just think about it. Four years ago, five years ago, texting was, you know, maybe was it 10? I don't know. It wasn't that prominent, right? Like it was, you know, but now it's like second nature to us, which I find particularly fascinating because when I was in Italy 22 years ago, texting was super prominent and we were like, why would we text? (laughs) And now we all know why. No, you're absolutely right. I I was a bit surprised that, um, you know, clinical communications was so high. I was surprised telehealth wasn't higher, to be honest. Um, Wasn't surprising to see data security on there and EHR optimization. Those are two things that we've been seeing a lot in the various shows we go to. And certainly you and I have been talking a lot about both those topics. And your, you know, your, your mention of ransomware and data breaching. I mean, that's, those are things that aren't sexy, but definitely have to be dealt with. So it's great that it's on the list. But I think you're absolutely right around the clinical communications. And, and to me, I think not only is it the consolidation driving why that's on the top five, I think also it's the uh, recognition now that we need to do more than just simply send a message to say mm. your appointment is coming up, right? Or, or this is what you need to do to get ready for the appointment. I think now we're starting to see these communication systems uh, integrate with the EHR to send contextually relevant information like, oh, you have this condition and this condition, I better send this message, right? Um, or, hey, you, you, like, you, like you're suggesting, you've got five appointments today. And let me try to send you one with everything in it rather than five messages separately from five different um, communication subsystems. So I definitely think and it's encouraging to see investment in that area because to me, that's a horrible patient experience. We've actually swung the pendulum too far, right? You're getting 11 messages from 11 different departments about your appointments. When really all you want is one, because it's one organization in your mind as a patient. Yeah. Well, and the focus on patients, a good one. I, I think it's fascinating. Three of the five are really focused on burnout as well. Interoperability, you're burnt out because you don't have access to the right data. Clinical communications, you're burnt out because you have to go to five systems or that you get overload of messaging and there's no way to know that you're getting overloaded because it's across five systems, <laughs> you know, those, those types of things. EHR optimization definitely a burnout topic. So, you know, that's an interesting one too. And, you know, COVID's made that worse, but it was a problem before COVID. So, you know, if anything, COVID's hidden some of that, but uh, it's good to see that many IT leaders that took this survey are focused on those things that could help burnout for those users. Yeah. Now you mentioned AI um, as, as, uh, as one uh, that was surprising that it wasn't on the top five. Um, for me, kind of related to 
to that, unfortunately, was um, remote patient monitoring. Mm. You know, you, you and I have seen that this was has been growing in, in, in need, and we're certainly certainly seeing a lot of activity in this area. Uh, but it didn't make the top five. I thought it would, just given everything that we've been through recently in the in the pandemic and everything. But good news is, I I think it is a, still a priority. It just didn't crack the top five, and I was a little bit shocked at that. Yeah, I bet if we surveyed innovation officers, it would be in their top five, but maybe not the other IT leaders. It hasn't filtered down to them yet. The innovation officers still figuring out what's our strategy, who do we want to go with. So that might be the explanation. Could be, could be. Well, and number five on that list was telehealth, and and you know I think we can end by talking about this this interesting stat. Um, so uh, the Center for Connected Medicine, a group out of uh, UPMC recently came out with a study that showed that health system telehealth is settling in at around 20% or less of all medical appointments, which is much lower or lower than the post-pandemic or than the pandemic peak. Um, the sort of counterbalance to that is that most of the people surveyed said they would still invest in telehealth, even though it had declined essentially from, the, uh, from their peak usage. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think there's an episode we need to call back to uh, <laughs> where I think I made a prediction of 15%. So I guess it's not too surprising for me, uh, you know, that it's hitting that. Uh, that's about 20. I'll take the less to kind of round it to my 15% uh, and feel good about my prediction. You made the under, you made the under in other words, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I definitely would have taken the under on a 20%. So, but I, you know, in one way it's, it's sad that we're dropping so much. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not surprising to me. They haven't done the investment as far as reimbursement to ensure that that's going to happen. They haven't, you know, done the licensing to make sure that, you know, they can be licensed across multiple states. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think since COVID, have they done anything good to try to encourage telehealth? So far, all I've seen is them taking away things that they implemented during the pandemic. I haven't seen them do anything to improve the reimbursement, the understanding, the regulations around telehealth. So like, in, should we think that it should be higher? Uh, from a patient perspective, we do. We all know it's right. Uh, I saw an amazing tweet. I may have mentioned this before. It said, um, everyone knows that telehealth's better for the patient, except Congress. <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of feels like it. <laughs> no, you're, you're right. I, I, it's, it is surprising that we've already declining. Like, I thought it would still, you know, maintain a little bit of its levels, given um, that reimbursement has not gone away completely. It's, there's a lot of uncertainty whether it will continue, but they've at least extended it a little bit. But um, I think, you know, A, I go back to, I think patients especially those that have more than one condition, just want to go back to their, their doctors if it's feasible for them. If they were in an mm -hmm. urban setting and it was easy to get to their doctor before or easy to get to the hospital before, I think they're like, yeah, you know what? I'd rather come in that way. You know, maybe they might see something and we might talk about something that I might not have thought of um, that you can't do very easily by a telehealth appointment. Um, I also think that, you know, unfortunately, what maybe not in the statistics is, you know, uh, I'll call it specialty specific, because I think in mental health and behavioral health, it will remain very high. And in fact, hopefully will grow because that has been a, a type of service that can be done very, very easily and well over telehealth. But the other ones, I think the realization is setting in, it says, yeah, this is okay as a stopgap. It's not really ideal. 
um, and it doesn't really fit into the workflow that well. So <laughs> I like to get back to it. You know? Yeah, I guess I'm torn on the telehealth, uh, mental health uh, side of things. Uh, I think it's great as an introduction, as we talked about the stigmas associated with it, and you know, I, I think it's great that way. But uh, you know, for me personally, I did the telehealth with my counselor, uh, and it's just not quite as good. the The talking over each other, the that that the acknowledgement. Uh, it's just slightly lax, right? So I, I think when you're afraid from stigma, it's great. But once you get into a rhythm and you're like, hey, okay, I, I like this and I want to do it more, the in-person is better even for mental health. Uh, you know, whereas there's a lot of follow-up visits that I would love to see. And we're seeing some of that in specialties where they're like, oh, you had a surgery. I just need to see the wound and I need to see whatever, right? I need to see you walk or whatever. I don't need you actually here in the office and you don't have pain. I, you know, you can tell me that over the video some of those things could work really well. I think what's interesting, I, I, I don't know if you have any stats from Canada. I don't, you know, you probably don't offhand, but you don't have the problem we have. Right? I mean, I think your doctors are, are nationally recognized and I think you're, you know, you have the national health system, so they should be embracing telehealth like crazy. I would think, you know, is that happening or are you seeing the kickback there as well? Uh, yeah, no, uh, unfortunately, just like the U.S., it's not nationally recognized. You can't practice oh, across uh, across provincial uh, borders. So we do have the same problem um, The from that standpoint. But I think for, for us, it's more that, and, and the reimbursement is the same because the doctors are going to get paid regardless of, you know, yeah. it, there, there's no, they've kept, they've said um, that the, the reimbursement is going to be identical. It's, it's really more, I think, that they also said they weren't going to pay for it. Right? So it's, it's the cost of, of actually implementing these systems, which is a little bit of a burden for um, gotcha. you know, under, the, under the single payer system. So, but yeah, I, I we're seeing, I, I would bet if we looked at the Canadian statistics, it would be similar decline. I think people are just, um, you know, wanting to get back and especially in the urban areas, I think the decline is steeper, but I think those in the rural areas, I'm hoping that if a stat comes out, we're, we're going to see that telehealth has maintained steady in the rural areas. Yeah. I just think of my buddy in Montana who he was embracing telehealth prior to COVID and his story was, he's like, I have patients that, that, you know, you have a foot snowfall. How are they supposed to come into the office? He's like, they can't do that, but they could hop on the telehealth and I could actually see him. He's like, maybe it's even better for them to be in the office for the visit. But the reality is when you have a foot snowfall, they're not coming to the office. So at least telehealth will give them something. So I thought that was, you know, to your point of rural, right? There's all these issues with people getting into the office that telehealth should solve. Hopefully, fingers crossed. Well, thanks to all of you who tuned into this episode of Healthcare IT Today. For more details about our show, check out the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com. And please share your voice and engage with the community at healthcareittoday.com and on Twitter using the hashtag HITSM. I'm Colin Hung, my friend and health IT collaborator, John Lee. Thanks for listening and have a great week.